No way, right? I'm not sure if we're supposed to be as excited to watch someone sit there and cry so much, but uh, it does bring a lot of joy to you when you see someone's life change as a result of just uh, a little generosity of a little bit goes a long way. And so that's why we do Dollar Club. We love it around this place for just another dollar per person or another dollar or an extra dollar here, what can happen. And it's just an idea that if we put a little bit more into something, we can see massive change when we come together as the church. And so that's an awesome story. It is fun to see those Dollar Club stories all the time, to be a part of them. I am grateful to be a part of this church. I am grateful to be be a part of what River Ridge is about. I am grateful for a moment I can be in this moment with you guys right now in order to worship and to celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. I am grateful for that moment. If you are a guest with us in this place, my name is Blair. I am one of the pastors here, so make that of it what you will. Uh, glad you're here today. Uh, but I am actually a pastor in the area of discipleship and community. Um, and discipleship is kind of a churchy word. Uh, it really just means that it's a, a person who is a follower or a learner from someone else or for some something. And in this case, if you hear us around here, Christians that are around this place, will often say that we are followers or disciples of Jesus. What ultimately is, is that we're gonna look at the life of Jesus. We're gonna see all about him. We're gonna use him as an example. And we're gonna follow after all the ways he, he's, uh, that, that he lived. And then we're gonna match that and live our lives like that. Um, Last week, if you were here, you recognize a big milestone, a big moment in the life of 24 followers of Jesus, 24 people who had this moment in their life, 24 people who had an opportunity to say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, I am a follower of Jesus, and I'm gonna follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And they stake their claim in the sand saying, I'm a believer and I will always be a believer. And they did it through baptism. And if you were here last week for baptism, you know what an awesome event that was in their lives and in our lives as we get to be a part of it. If you missed last week, I would really encourage you, go back and watch the video. Go back and watch the stories. Go back and hear about the life transformation that happened in those people's lives. I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, it will encourage you. You will be built up. It will be edification for your soul to see how those people have come from death to life and now they're declaring that for the world to know that they're gonna follow him from here on out. Uh, it is one part, it is, a, it is a significant part, it is a milestone in someone that is a follower of Jesus' life. But it's one part of it. Discipleship is an ongoing process of community, of connecting with people, of growing uh, in our own faith. And so if you want to get plugged in and you're not in a community group, you're not in a discipleship group, we wanna help you get there. Uh, I love to help people find other people in their life to help them continue to take their next steps in their journey with God. So if you'd like to find out more about that, you can stop by our guest central desk on your way out. Whether you're a guest or whether you've been a long-term person here, go and ask them a little bit about what it's all about to be in discipleship, about to be in one of these home groups that are a part of our life. And if you have any questions, I would love to answer those as well. If you did miss last week's baptism, I also wanna help you take that step. And so if you've been trying to get baptized and didn't realize last week was your opportunity to do that, we wanna make sure you know the next time that's coming up. If you see those, those life stories and you wanna take that step yourself, our next baptism classes, 
baptism at the Ridge for students and adults, and we believe for parents and their children, Ridge kids, uh, will be on September 10th. So you can go ahead and mark your calendar, mark that down, and then our next baptism service, everybody can mark this down because you're gonna wanna be there, is October 22nd to go and be a part of this. Uh, But again, if you have any questions, you can always jump out or you can always throw them to me and I would love to to talk about baptism or any of these things with you at any point. Well, this morning we're gonna be in Matthew, the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can start turning to Matthew four. Um, We're gonna be there starting in the verse one. Um, which is literally just the verse after what Andy taught last week. So this is really cool, kind of like looking at baptism and then looking at the next step in Jesus' life. But before we do that, let me pray over our time here. Merciful God, loving Father, we are so grateful that we can come before you. We are so grateful for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that today it would transform our hearts let it do exactly what you say it will do. You, you, you promise that your word will never go out void, that we'll do exactly what you intend for it to do. And therefore we rely on that today as we come with expectant hearts to go into your word, to hear from you, God. Uh, I, I bring very little to this. It is your word that transforms lives, God, and I'm aware of that. And so I am grateful and humbled as a teacher of your word to be able to explain or to teach, to share, to just talk about what it is, a joy to know your word. God, I pray that today our hearts would be transformed to be more and more like you, like your son. Let us follow his example in all of our life. Thank you for this time. We praise you for who you are. Amen. All right, well, Matthew 4. We're gonna be looking at Matthew 4. If you're there, that's awesome. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're gonna have, we got you covered this morning. We've got it up on the screens for you to be able to check out. But we would love to give you a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, we've got some out in the lobby. Make sure to grab one of those on your way out as just a gift. You can bring it with you. You can use it. You can read it all through your life. It will be transformational. Um, and so we'd love to give you a copy of that. But we're gonna be in Matthew 4. We're gonna be looking at the first 11 verses. And so if you look in your Bible, there's probably a subtitle over it that says something like the temptation of Jesus. All right. So when you get there, the very first word that you're going to see in Matthew four is the word then. Then's kind of an interesting word. Then is one of those transitional words. They come in the Bible often. Then, therefore, after that, and then. And when we ever see those kinds of words when we're looking at the Bible, we always want to ask the question of, of like, wait a minute, there's a then, there's a transitional word. What happened before it? Because it matters to whatever we're looking at today. And so we need to actually go back and see the last couple of verses so that we can understand Oh, then this happened. So let's go ahead. Looking back on, on Matthew 3, if you want to look in your own Bible, but here it is. It says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens opened up to him and, the ho- and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says this. A voice from heaven calls out to him and says, this, you, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus comes up out of the water, right? He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes down on him, descends down on him, rests on him. What it says is like, it looks kind of like a dove and God the Father speaks. And God the Father speaks and he says the thing that we all want to hear. This, you are my beloved child. 
in whom I am well pleased. Directly to Jesus, he says, you are my son. You are the son of God. Man, one thinking about those moments gets me really excited when I look at that. And then Jesus, then Jesus. Now, we're at the very next moment, right after that. Then Jesus, the next thing that happens in the life of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So right after his baptism, right after that moment, the Holy Spirit guided Jesus into this moment. It's kind of a weird thing when you look at it, right? That Jesus, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was going to meet the devil. The Holy Spirit was leading him into the wilderness to go and meet up with the devil. He was getting ready to be tested. If you look at the top of your Bible there, again, the subtitle, it says is the temptation of Jesus. He was getting ready to be tested and he was gonna be tempted. A really important thing to recognize when reading this, a really significant moment, is to recognize that God never tempts though. James in his book writes this, and he's adamant and clear about the fact that God will never tempt you into evil, never something he would do. He does talk in James one about the idea to consider it pure joy when you face trials, when you face tests, this idea that God is going to bring you into opportunities that you have tests and trials because it does something. When you consider it pure joy that you go through tests and trials because it produces in you character qualities. It gives you an opportunity to grow up in your faith. James says that it's gonna produce in you faith and it's gonna produce in you hope and it's gonna produce in you character and perseverance. And all of these things happen as a result of the test and trial and the opportunity that we have. But it's really, really important when we read that verse there, not to, get to, not to make a jump and say that the Holy Spirit led him to be, that the Holy Spirit is tempting him to evil. Rather yet, the devil is doing those kinds of things. All right, so after we get to that point, the next thing that we see there, and after he is being led into the wilderness, after he gets there, and after that, fasting, he has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. A really cool moment here as we look in the life of Jesus that we can see the humanity of Jesus, that he is hungry, just like you and I, every single day. We don't eat, we get hungry. So in this moment, we can see the humanity of Jesus himself because oftentimes when we look at Jesus, we're like, ah, but it's Jesus. But this shows us that Jesus was human. He had the same experiences and the same feelings we had, hunger and tiredness, loneliness. He had all of those kinds of emotions. But then at the same time, when I look at this, I'm also a little bit kind of like, uh, but I also see the divinity of Jesus right here too, right? And after 40 days and 40 nights, then he was hungry, you know? Like you look at me and you're like, you can tell this guy takes some snacks in between meals and, and then I'm hungry, right? But Jesus, somehow 40 days, 40 nights, and then he was hungry. So both divinity and humanity all show up in this passage all at the same time, right? But after 40 days, just like us, he has his humanity. We see his humanity and that he's hungry and that he's hungry. And then the tempter came. And then the tempter came. This is significant, right? Like this is, you wanna see the MO of the way that the tempter works? This is it. This is it. So at the moment when he believes Jesus to be at his weakest, the moment where he thinks he's at his weakest, 40 days, 40 nights out in the wilderness, he's hungry. He's been tired. 
He's probably lonely. He has not even got his crew together that are gonna be his people. The disciples haven't even been selected yet. And as a result of it, he's out there tired, lonely, hungry. And that's when the tempter came. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, he said back to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The tempter goes right after his hunger, right? We know he's hungry. And the tempter says, hey, how about, how about this? Jesus, you're hungry? No reason for you to be hungry, right? Like there's some stones sitting over there. Just flip those things, change those things, make those into some bread. You know, you've been at this thing for a while now. You're the son of God, right? If you're the son of God, that's no big deal for you to take those stones and turn them into bread. I mean, why in the world would the son of God sit here in hunger when he doesn't have to? You got the ability, right? Nobody's around. Just whip up a nice flaky croissant there. Get yourself some bread. Or better yet, grab some of those Dunkin' Donut holes. I hear that they're gonna be the food of your church in the future, right? But Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't do it in this moment. He quotes, and instead, he quotes Deuteronomy at him. But why though? I feel like it's a normal question, right? Like what's the big deal? Why doesn't Jesus just turn the, the stones into bread? It's not like he can't do it. He's been at it 40 days. 40 days is about the length of a fast. He's done the fast, it's over. If he's hungry, why doesn't he just do it? He does it in the future, right? Like he makes bread and fish. He takes these little bit and makes tons of it multiple times. Matt was telling us about it a few weeks ago and feeds thousands and thousands of people. But why doesn't he do, do it? Why does it even matter? Like, why doesn't he just do this? Why does he all of a sudden change this from a physical conversation to a spiritual one, right? Like, what is Jesus doing with that? Well, a couple of things. First off, first off, if Jesus did this, if Jesus turned those stones into bread and made himself some food out of, out of it, it would have been the first and only time ever that he used his miraculous powers to be self-serving. Never, not single one time recorded in scripture does Jesus ever use his powers in order to serve himself. Every single time he uses his miraculous power, it is always for the benefit of those that are around him, other people who are suffering. He takes care of them every single time. And it's kind of crazy because I think if I had those powers, I might try to make life a little bit easier on myself, right? Like he can still live this holy and righteous life, but make it a little bit easier. He's out there in the wilderness, probably laying on stones. He has the ability. Why don't I just kind of levitate tonight? You know, like I could just lay out here and be on the feather cushions of a cloud if I want to. I don't need to feel these stones in my back. Why would I be doing that? But not once, not a single time does he ever use his powers for his own benefits. It's always, always, always for the benefit of others. The other thing is, is that he knows God will sustain him. He knows that. He knows that God will sustain him. And so he changes the focus, not from the physical side of it, but focuses in on the spiritual nourishment being more important than the physical. See, because second, strongly related to the first, 
is, is that the key to recognizing how this is an important moment, how the tempter is trying to go after him, why this is a temptation at all, it's by the words that the first thing that the tempter says, if you are the son of God. Do you see it? Do you see the temptation in there? Do you recognize what he's actually trying to do? What the tempter is really trying to get at? What the real temptation is? What actually has been the temptation always? Will you trust God? See, because when Jesus came out of the baptism waters, what did God say to him? This, you are my beloved son. That's what God said to him. And the tempter's goal, if you wanna see the way the tempter works, the tempter's goal is to get you not to trust God's word. Satan attempts to attack God's words. He wants to bring doubt in, that's his MO. He wants to make you question whether you understood God at all, whether you got God right or not, whether you heard what he said. He tempts someone into trust themselves rather than God. This is what happened in the very beginning when sin entered the world with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Then as soon as they start distorting the words of God in that moment, the serpent knew he had them. Same thing he's doing here. If you are the son of God, prove it. Prove it. Prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. Take things into your own hands. In essence, don't trust his word for it. And we get the understanding what that makes when Jesus responds to him all the more powerful. Look at this again. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, man is not sustained by food, but by the very word that come from the mouth of God. I will experience real life through the words that come from God. Life was created by the word of God. Let there be, and there was. Life is held together by the word of God. In Colossians, it tells us that everything, all of creation is held together by him, by him, Jesus, by the word of God incarnate, by the very word of God. And life is fully experienced by the word of God. You are my beloved son. When God declares Jesus the son of God, he trusted it. He didn't take things back into his own hands, but he believed the father fully. Then the devil, he tried something different. The devil took him, took Jesus to the holy city and he set him on the very pinnacle of the temple itself. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, there he is going at it again, same exact thing, same thing right there, that little bit. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from this high point for it is written, Look at how he goes at it. The tempter goes, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right there again, we see Satan, the tempter, the devil, come at him and he goes with that same thing. If you're the son of God, trying to put that little doubt in there, but he's crafty. 
He's crafty. He goes after and says, oh yeah, okay, you wanna say you live by the words that come from God's mouth? Here is part of the word. Here's Psalm 91. Let me give you some of that words right now. If you are this, the Bible tells us, your word tells us that if you get thrown down off of this temple, you're not, nothing's gonna happen to you. Go ahead and prove who you are. Some of the details of this temptation are important for us to see. They're really significant because where the tempter takes him to is to Jerusalem, to the very pinnacle of the temple, to the very place where people voyage to go and find God, to go and to connect with God, to know who God is, to the very place where that is. If Jesus would have thrown himself down and made a display, it would have been a spectacular display. Lots of people would have seen it happen. People that were there trying to find God, they would have seen this happen. They would have seen what would happen and he probably would have had a very enthusiastic following after that. People were ready to find God and would this, and this would be the perfect place in order to show off his power and let everyone see him. And then Satan quotes scripture and says, hey, it's all in there. But Satan uses the scripture and he misuses it. And Jesus, on the other hand, counters on this moment. And he says, wait a minute, that's not the right passage to be looking at. The more relevant words of God are this. One must not manipulate God by trying to force his hands. Yeah, maybe it would create this following. People probably would have been pretty passionate about what Jesus had just done, but it would not have followed the Father's plan. It, it, it wasn't how the plan was for the Messiah. It wasn't what they had planned for the Messiah to do when he came. It wasn't part of the redemptive plan. And if you take this moment, if you take this moment right now, you're gonna shortcut things. You're gonna go off the plan that we created in the beginning. The Father and Jesus are sitting there recognizing this moment and they're recognizing and Jesus knows that that's not the plan that they put in place. Again, the devil comes at him a third time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these, all these kingdoms, everything that's here, I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Interesting on this one, he didn't start with, if you are the son of God bit, right? He went a little bit different way on this time. I'm guessing because he is crafty. He's smart, he knows what he's doing. He is actually offering Jesus something that will be his anyway. Something that the Messiah will have in the future. The promise of the Messiah is the promise of a new king, a new king who will be on the throne and that throne will be established forever. Everyone will bow down to the one who is on the king. All of these things have been prophesied that one day the, the, the Messiah would be the king and he will have all of these. All the world one day will bow down to King Jesus, the son of God. What he is being offered will one day be his anyway. So what he is actually offering him is a shortcut. 
It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut that doesn't involve the cross. You don't need to do that. Don't worry about that part. Don't worry about that. You don't need to suffer. We can shortcut that. I'll give it all to you right now. You can have it all. It's all yours, no pain. You don't have to feel the pain. You don't have to feel the suffering. But the redemptive plan that Jesus knew about, that Jesus had established, the plan was for the son of God to take the punishment of the sin of the people. And that was gonna be on the cross. That was gonna involve suffering. The punishment for sin is death. The redemptive plan that was worked out from the beginning was that the redeemer would pay the penalty that was owed. The cost for these guilty lives is death and somebody has to pay it. What Satan is offering Jesus in this moment is a way to shortcut the whole thing. But Jesus doesn't do that because he says something, you just need to bow down and worship me. This time, time, Satan went too far with the temptation, right? Like, because in this moment, Jesus can't take it anymore. Be gone, Satan. Now you've crossed the line. Now you've gone past the point. It's one thing for you to tell me to make some stones into bread. It's one thing for you to tell me to to trick the people or or to jump the plan or to put on this spectacular display. It's a different thing when you tell me to bow down and worship you. And he says, get out of here. I don't know how many times Jesus gets angry, but this looks like one of those moments for me. One of those moments when I read it and he just is continuing, he's okay with the process of the attacks until it crosses the line that you're now you're talking about worship. You will not do that in my presence, he said, be gone. So the devil obeys and then the angels come and they minister to him. I like that the angels come and minister to him. I was thinking in my house, after we have had a tough day in our house, I always have to make a run to Dairy Queen in order to kind of fix things a little bit. It's kind of that, that thing that settles. And I think that it's like, I, I wonder if Jesus kind of goes to one of the angels at this moment and says, you know what they're gonna have in the future? It's called an Oreo blizzard. Can, can you... Uh, can you bring one of those? We're done with this, this thing. You can minister to me in that way. There's a ton of stuff we can actually grab from this passage. We can learn so much. Let me just grab a couple for us real quick in the last 10 minutes we're hitting here. Just a couple of points we can chew on. Number one, you gotta recognize this. There is a spiritual world and I need to bring it into focus. I want you to think about eyeglasses here for a second, right? There are two major two major things that eyeglasses do. One, either they make things that are really close, very clear, or they make things that are very far come into focus, right? They do one of two things. I don't think you can do them both at the exact same time. I mean, they make glasses where you can look in one part and look in the other part. But what they, what they do is they try to bring the focus in. For us all too often, what we see is just what's right here real close, right? We see the, this part of it real close. And what Jesus is kind of doing here that help us to understand is that he actually has his spiritual glasses on at all times, right? He can see past that moment and see what this actually means. And what I'm saying is, is that one of the things that we need to grab from this is we need to be able to have our spiritual glasses on as well, because it's gonna change the way we see the world. It's gonna change, it changes it from turning stones into bread into what does that actually say? A lack of trust in God. See, Jesus knew this because he could view through his spiritual lenses, but oftentimes we don't. We get focused on the things that are close 
what is immediate, not really worry about the stuff that's far away. But Jesus had a way of doing both of those at the exact same time. He could see the immediate problems. He saw them. He saw people were hurting, he had compassion on them. He saw people were sick and he healed them. He saw people who were, uh, needed help with their taxes and, and they helped them. He, he did, performed miracle after miracle often because he could see the immediate problems. We see that he had compassion on the people to care for these immediate problems, but also he could see the deeper meaning of things. He had a spiritual vision about the way in which he looked at, at, at things. He could tell the woman at the well that she needed living water. You need the living water. He could tell the man that his sins were forgiven. He told a man that was dying on cross, I'll see you on, in paradise not too long from now. When we read these temptations in the Bible, we're looking at them with spiritual glasses, right? If we're reading in the Bible, we're often asking for the spiritual meaning behind it, try to understand what is, what is here. So when we look at the choice that's given to Jesus in this moment, we actually kind of have our spiritual glasses on. We can hear how Jesus says, hey, this is an issue. Here's why it's an issue, because he's trying to tell me not to trust the words of God. And we're like, yeah, that's bad, don't do that. Actually, we know that in those moments. But the problem is, is that as soon as we we leave our Bible, we almost take off our spiritual glasses and set them aside and we stop looking at the real world through that, that same lens. And so the idea is, is that we have to put on our spiritual glasses a little bit more often and recognize that when we go through the world, there will be opportunities for us to recognize the spiritual world that is out there, not just when we're reading the word, but when we're out in real life as well. So we have to be able to see these moments where we have choices that are brought to us, choice after choice that we have an opportunity. And sometimes they're not just about getting the bread. They have a spiritual meaning behind them and we're not seeing them because we've taken off our spiritual glasses. See, when the spiritual world comes into focus though, we're gonna recognize something else. You're gonna see that there's a battle going on and there is a spiritual battle that's happening. And I'm gonna tell you, the battle is for something. The battle is over, it is for my heart. It is for your heart. The battle that's going on is for our hearts. C.S. Lewis, maybe one of the, maybe most well-known for writing the Narnia series, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you're familiar with this book, it's a really kind of an interesting book. It's this fictional, almost satirical book that he writes and it comes from, the, from a conversation with a novice demon, actually. The demon's responsibility is to this person known as the patient. And his role is to get the patient to stop trusting the words of God. And so he actually uh, writes letters back and forth to his uncle that's a much more experienced demon trying to help to understand, like, what do I do? How do I do this? What's my, how, what should I do? And, you know, the, the name of the novice demon is um, Wormwood and his uncle's name is Screwtape. Um, Lewis illustrates that this battle is going on all the time, that there is a battle over the heart of a single man who's just named in the book, the patient. The goal of the demon is just to make sure that he stops trusting. And so he writes to his uncle saying, how do I, how do I affect this? Do I just give him this really massive illness? Do I, do I bring some, you know, like a, a war into his area? And Screwtape kind of helps him understand, hey, you don't really need to do that, actually. In fact, sometimes that goes the other way. It's a little bit confusing when you use those big things. Sometimes it actually turns them to God more. You know what you wanna do is just distract them. 
that's really what you actually wanna do, distract them. It's a much more tried and true way. Just get them interested in something else, anything. Entertainment, get them interested in the success of their job. Just let them go about life and just completely forget about God. And so as a result, doesn't recognize the spiritual world that's going on, doesn't recognize the spiritual battle that's going on, doesn't recognize that the spiritual battle is actually for my heart when I'm in those moments. Satan doesn't really care if you trust him. All he really cares is that you don't trust God. As long as you don't fully trust God, he feels like he's one. As long as you don't live your life for God, he feels like he's won the victory. And that's what we see in this, in this book, in this illustration. It's, it's, it's fictional, but it's really helpful for understanding temptation because the idea is just get them busy. Just get them distracted. Just get them into what they're doing in the world. Just let them focus on success. Let them care more about a sport that they're invested in. Let them care more about their job. Let them care more about gardening. Let them care about anything but recognizing that the spiritual battle is going on. For the last few months, I've been thinking about this quote by a man named Dallas Willard. He's a philosopher, basically a, he's a writer, a philosopher, a really smart man. And he says, actually, the greatest enemy to the spiritual life is hurry. That's weird, right? That seems very strange. It's not alcohol, it's not drugs, it's not sex, it's not any of the other things that can turn into vices so easily, but it's hurry. Hurry. It's like being so busy and so scheduled that you don't have time for your spiritual life. It's like you have so much, you're, you're so busy that you don't have time to put on the spiritual glasses and check out what the real choice is, what the spiritual world is really going on, what's happening behind the scenes. Because the truth is, is we make thousands and thousands of choices all through our life, thousands and thousands of choices. And the temptation right now is to say, I don't have time to analyze everything through the spiritual lenses of life. And so it makes it really easy if that you're super busy, if that we're super in a hurry, if we have no time to stop. And that's what Dallas Willard is getting at, that unless you take the time, unless you get rid of hurry, then it's gonna be your greatest enemy. Screw tape would have told Wormwood, just get them busy. It'll distract them. And they won't even think about the spiritual implications. They won't even stop to consider what God's plan is. They'll just make the bread out of the stones and keep on going. Ultimately saying, God, I don't trust you that much. I don't trust your timing. I don't trust that you really care about me. I don't trust that your way of doing this will work. The last point, and it is kind of significant, but, and we'll get there in one second, but before we do that, Jesus gave us an example in this. And he didn't rush, he didn't shortcut the plans, he didn't change what was established from the beginning of time. When the tempter came, he knew exactly what to say. He fought back the devil. He did it, he, he, he fought back the devil with scripture. He knew exactly which scripture to pull out at every single given moment. An application point could be for us in this exact moment to say, hey, we need to know God's word perfectly. We really do, we need to get into God's word. We need to dive into God's word. We need to see what God's word has to say. We need to know it so well that it comes out of us. Every single time a temptation comes up, I need to be prepared and know what the perfect scripture is for that moment. 
He is our example. We are to follow all the ways that he did. He did this. This is a great application. Follow after, know Jesus's words, know God's words and live them out. We could wrap up right there. We know that we need to put on our glasses and recognize that there's a spiritual world going on. We need to focus in on it. We need to be aware of it. We need to recognize and we know that there is a spiritual battle happening. Therefore, I need to recognize what it's for. It's over my heart. We could say, oh, I know the strategies to fight it off. I saw what Jesus did there. I know what Jesus did. What I need to do is be so filled with the word, be filled, so filled with it that I know how to handle every single moment. And that would be a great place we could walk out of here and do that exactly just like that. But in a little bit, someone's gonna stop and they're gonna say something. And they're gonna think about that and they're gonna say, yeah, but that was Jesus, right? I can't do what Jesus did. Of course Jesus did that. Jesus was the incarnate. He was literally the word of God in flesh. He knew every single thing in every single moment. I can't do that. And that's why this third point is really significant. I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't only the example, he is the substitute. You gotta, you gotta hear that, I want, I'm gonna say it again, you have to understand that. Jesus isn't only the example, he is the substitute. He didn't come only as an example, he came as a substitute and a savior. When we put that into our life, when we recognize that words, you have to hear them, you have to know them because you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna think, I gotta follow the example of Jesus, which is true, he is our example, but there's another part of it that's gonna be like, if I have to do it exactly like Jesus, if I have to know the words exactly right every single time, if that's the only way I'm gonna be able to fight off the tempter, if that's the only way I can get out of this, I'm cooked. There's no way I can do it. I'm cooked. I can't follow the, exactly the way Jesus did. But here's what's really, really awesome. This is the hope that we have. He didn't come only as an example. He came as a substitute and a savior for us. He, unlike every other religion that's out there that said, follow me as your example, live like I live and then you'll be good to go. That's not the way Jesus came. Jesus came completely different. He came not only as an example, but he came as your substitute because of the fact that he knew we could not do it. The Bible tells us that there is now no condemn, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero, because he is the substitute, he is the savior. So therefore, if you go out here and you're like, I'm trying to follow the example and I fell, you can recognize the hope that we have that there was a substitute and savior who already paid the penalty for us. Jesus tells us that I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. I'm bringing this with me. And then in Matthew, right before he gets ready to leave, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me because I am King Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go out into the world, go into the whole nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches because I was the substitute, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you can go and you can live this life out and know that I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus, I am so thankful that you are our substitute. I have a hope that I can continue walking this life. I have followed you as an example previously in times and I found myself in failure and it led to shame 
And I had a hard time of getting back up at different times. But when I recognize the truth that you didn't come just as an example, you came as the substitute, I have a hope that I can live this life now. Thy sins are covered. There is no condemnation for me. I can follow after you fully. I can see that you are an example. I can see how to follow, the, uh, to, to fight against the temptations of this world. And I can keep walking towards you because of what you have done on the cross. Thank you for that gift. God, I pray that over us as a church that we would recognize that you are our savior and you have paid the penalty for all sins. We love you, God. Amen. Yeah, we can celebrate Jesus in that moment, yes. Well, that'll close us out of this service. Walk in that truth. Walk in the truth that he has already paid the penalty, and then we can live this life. See you guys next week. Love you.